We're in Judges 4, and it's the story of Deborah and Barak as we look at the need for a king. As we see in the book of Judges, deliverer after deliverer uh, fail to provide that ultimate deliverance that the people need, a deliverance that can only come, a salvation that can only come through the ultimate king, Jesus Christ. The book of Judges leaves us yearning for Christ and seeing his, his perfect salvation in these imperfect vessels. And so if you're able to, if you're there in Judges 4, if you're able to, if you'd stand with me in honor of God as we read Judges 4. Verse 1 of Judges 4. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Harasheth Hagoyim. And then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kedesh Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you? Go, gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun, and I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon, with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. Barak said to her, If you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. And then Deborah rose and went with Barak to Kadesh. And Barak called out Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh, and 10,000 men went up at his heels, and Deborah went up with him. Now Heber, the Kenite, had separated from the Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent as far away as the oak in Zananim, which is, in, which is near Kedesh. When Sisera was told that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera called out all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the men who were with him from Harasheth Hagoyim to the river Kishon. And Deborah said to Barak, Up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? And so Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him, and the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. And Barak pursued the chariots and the army to Harasheth Hagoyim, and all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. But Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, for there was peace between Jabin the king of Hazor and the house of Heber the Kenite. And Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me, do not be afraid. And so he turned aside to her into the tent, and she covered him with a rug. And he said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. And he said to her, Stand at the opening of the tent, and if any man comes and asks you, Is anyone here? Say, No. But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. 
Then she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. So he died. And behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and said to him, Come, and I will show you the man whom you are seeking. And so he went to her tent, and there lay Sisera dead with the tent peg in his temple. And so on that day, God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel. And the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they destroyed Janan, king of Canaan. You may be seated. Father, as we read your word together, we pray that you and your kindness would allow us to, to know you more and to delight in your salvation. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. Each of our children was a, a little bit uh, nervous about learning how to swim. And so we, we went through all the kind of the, the steps that you take in kind of helping a, a child learn to swim. You know, you'd, you'd hold them close to you while you got in the water and bob around a little bit. And then you'd, and then you'd hold them out a little bit. And then you'd, you'd kind of go, okay, we're going in the water. And you'd, you'd sub- sounds mean now, but you know, you, you kind of go under the water and then you'd, you'd hold them on their, on their backs and, and then you'd kind of put them on some steps and say, swim to me and stuff, and they'd do it. Now, again, all of our kids were a little worried about the water. They weren't totally sure about how this, this swimming thing was going to go. I remember our son Austin was, was particularly concerned about some aspects of, of swimming, and uh, you know, whenever, I, whenever, I, whenever I was a little guy and I'd, I'd pull him away a little bit, I'd have claw marks on my back. Like, what are you doing, you crazy man? Don't you, don't you know what this thing can do to me? And I would hold him out, and he's like, I'm not really interested in this. And I remember one time, we, we kind of got to the point where he was, at, he was able to sit on the steps of the pool, and we'd, we'd say, come to me. And like, eh, I'm good over here, just, just relaxing. And I remember one time we were at a pool, and I was trying to get him to swim again, and set him down on the steps. And he's a little worried, a little nervous. And I said, well, jump to dad, jump to dad. And he goes, no, I, it's, okay, it's all the same to you. I'll, I'll stay here, splashing on the, the step. And and then he stops for a second. It's a new pool we hadn't been in before. He goes, well, now, Dad, what's that? And I look back, and there's this, this huge slide, this huge water slide. I said, well, that's, that's a slide, a water slide. He goes, well, I want to do that. So well, you can't do that until you can swim. And I look back at the slide, and checked on Hannah. She's over there. And I look back at Austin sitting on the step, except he's no longer on the step. He's this, this blob in the water kind of doing this, this weird thing with his hands really silently. And I reach down, and I pick him up, and he's sputtering, and he, and he, you know, he kind of wipes all the water out of his, his eyes, and he says, I'm swimming. Um, I said, no, you're, you're drowning. You're being rescued. That's step one, but you know, you're, not, you're not swimming yet. You know. But suddenly he was a lot more comfortable. Than he, he trusts, okay, dad's hands are here. He can protect me. Hold me up. And he, he learned to swim pretty, pretty quickly after that. And Went down the slide, right? Now, as we think about our lives and the things that we worry about, it's not always the same things, but we worry about work responsibilities. We're nervous about friends at school and relationships and how things are going to turn out. We, we worry about a lot of things. As we get older, we realize worry affects us physically. We, we have headaches from worry and stomach aches and blood pressure and and you know, uh, long-term heart disease. And so if you're worried, if you're a person who worries, you should really be concerned about that, right? That's not a no. Uh, Ultimately, though, ultimately the problem with worry 
the problem with, with worry is that worry suppresses worship. As we're worried, as, as we're concerned about things, what we're saying is we don't believe that God's hands are going to be able to sustain us. We don't believe that he's there as our heavenly father who can hold us and protect us far more than our, our earthly fathers and mothers can hold and sustain and care for us. As we worry, we're, we're turning our attention away from God's sovereign and providential salvation. Remember, we've talked about God's sovereignty and his, his providence before. We've, we've talked about how God's sovereignty refers to his absolute power over all things. And his sovereignty is how he expresses that power in his relationship with his creation. He is, he is completely providentially in control. All aspects of our, our salvation have been worked by God. God works through all things. He sustains his creation and works through his creation to fulfill his purposes. And as we contemplate that reality, as we acknowledge the fact that it is God who providentially saves us. We don't worry, we worship. In fact, that's the, the main idea I want us to think about as we look at this story of Barak and Deborah. Kind of the central idea is this. As I'm confronted with God's providential salvation, I can only respond with worship. As I'm confronted with this reality that God and his providence saves, I can't worry, I can't be anxious. Ultimately, I, I have to worship as I recognize all that God has done and all the ways in which he works. And this morning, as we look at this story, we're going to see God's providential salvation. We're going to see how he, he works through enemies, how he works through weak vessels of, of obedience. We're going to see many aspects in which God's providence plays out. And as we look at these different ways in which God's providence plays out, we're going to respond with worship. We're going to talk about some of these kind of quickly, but let's walk through the story. And the first thing we see is this, kind of five areas we're going to see God's providential hand. Number one, first we see that God providentially works through the obedience of his people. Remember the cycle we talked about over the last couple weeks? The people sin, and then they're brought into servitude, and then there's God's salvation, right? And so that cycle begins. Verse 1 tells us that Ehud dies. Ehud is the judge we talked about last week. And Ehud dies, and Ehud, like all the judges, points to the need for a king. Ehud is unable to change the hearts of the people. He's not able, he's able to transform them to hearts of obedience. As he dies, the people begin to sin again, pointing again ultimately to that need for a king, a king who can transform hearts. So Ehud dies, they, they, the people sin, and then what's the next part of the cycle? There's servitude, and in, cha in chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, it talks to us, uh, talks to us about the, the servitude that the people encounter. Jabin, this guy Jabin, king of Canaan, who resides somewhere to the, the north of the Sea of Galilee. Remember last week we were in the, the southern part of Israel, this week we're in the north. He has this territory kind of to the northeast of the Sea of Galilee, and he reigns, and there's this other commander that he has that works under him, this man named Sisera. And Sisera, his region is there kind of to the, to the south and the east of the Sea of Galilee. And they uh, oppress, Jabin oppresses the people of Israel, Sisera working with him. And they oppress, it says, the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. So there's sin, there's servitude, and then God brings about 
salvation. Verse 4 introduces us, verses 4 through 10 introduces us to the, the people through which this salvation takes place. First of all, it tells us about this woman, Deborah. Who is Deborah? She's a prophetess, which means she is able to, to speak the words of God. Remember Deuteronomy 18 talks about God putting words in the mouths of prophets. And whenever a, a prophet speaks in, in God's name, God says, I, I require it of, of the people who, who hear it to be obedient. And so she's, she's one who has God's words and the ability to, to speak them. She is uh, located here in this, this, this area around Galilee as well. And she's sitting there with the palm of Deborah. That's not referring to her Deborah. It's referring to Rebecca's nurse from Genesis 35.8. So she's sitting in this, this, under this palm of Deborah, the hill country of Ephraim. And it says that she's, she's judging Israel. And that word judging there refers to some sort of leadership, uh, governing is what's taking place there. And it says that the, all of Israel, the sons of Israel, the, the people of Israel, came to her for, the ESV translates it, judgment. But as we look at that word used throughout the book of Judges and other places in Scripture, really what it, it could be translated as, they came to her for the judgment. In other words, when you see verse 5 there, you might think, oh, this is talking about individuals coming to her and saying, hey, this guy, he's, he stole my sheep, and I'm really upset about it, and then this person uh, said they were going to do something, they didn't do it, can you please decide? It's like people's court, and she sits up there and she says, all right, now listen, and decides between their speeches. I don't, I don't think that's what it's describing here. She's a prophetess. She has the ability, by God's gifting, to, to speak the words of God to people, and these people, the, the sons of Israel, the, the people of Israel collectively are oppressed, and as, as a collective group or their representatives, they, they come to her for the judgment. They're saying, okay, Deborah, this is where we're at as, as a people. Now, what is God telling us that we need to do? How, how are we going to be delivered from that? I think that's what's happening here. The, the, the people of Israel are coming to her and saying, okay, we, we need God's salvation. How is it going to come about? And what does she do? She calls Barak. Look at what happens next in verse 6. It says she, she sent in, and she summoned Barak. Now, Barak in, in this story functions like, like the judges. Like he's, he's like the Samson, the Gideon, the Ehud from last week. He, he's the, as you look later in Scripture, and it talks about the judges. He's going to be the one that, that's listed among the judges. In Hebrews, it's going to talk about him being a, a person of faith. In other words, he is, he is the imperfect judge in this story that points us to the need for a king. He, he's, he's weak. Look what happens. She, she, uh, the people come to her and they say, okay, how are we going to be delivered? And she sends for Barak and he comes to her and, and she speaks God's word. She says, Barak, hasn't God told you what you're supposed to be doing? Hasn't God commanded you, go gather your men at Mount Tabor? And, and, I, and hasn't God told you, verse 7, I'm going to draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river with uh, his chariots and his troops, and, and I will give him into your hand. In other words, Deborah's saying, Barak, hasn't God already told you what he's supposed to do, what he's going to do, and what you're supposed to do in response to what God is going to do, and you're being disobedient to that? And Barak, somewhat pathetically, 
acknowledges the truth of what she said. Yes, yes, I've been given this instruction, but I'm only going to be obedient if, if you will go with me. And she says, I'll go, and then he goes. So the people of Israel have come to Deborah and said, we need to be delivered. She says, okay, let me speak God's word. The person through which this deliverance is going to, to come, she speaks the word and, and he obeys. And what happens throughout the rest of the story? God providentially saves his people. Now, how does that encourage us in our, our worry? Barak's faith is weak. His obedience is not perfect. And yet, what do we see? We see that God still works providentially through this this weak faith and this weak obedience. In other words, and we've talked about this before, the effectiveness of my faith is not based upon how good my faith is in in terms of, of how perfectly I exercise my faith. My faith is beneficial based upon the one in whom my faith is resting. God providentially uses the obedience of his people, even sometimes weak obedience. And sometimes I, I've talked to people and they've, they've said, you know what, I've, I disobeyed back here in the past. I was supposed to do this and I did this instead. I was supposed to do uh, X and I did Y. And now since I did Y, I, I'm in this time of disobedience and, and I, I know I should have faith, but I don't have faith and I'm not being perfectly on my obedience. Maybe God can't providentially have me where he desires me to be. Maybe I'm in some sort of place in God's plan that wasn't plan A, and now God can no longer do the the salvation that he desires to work in my life, and and now I'm just kind of stuck. And that simply isn't true. What do we see about God's providence? We see that God and his providence can even work through the, the mediocre obedience of his people. And wherever we are today, wherever we find ourselves today, despite past disobedience, as we gather ourselves up, and by God's grace, through our faith in Jesus Christ, God providentially works. That's the first thing we see. It's an encouragement. Secondly, a small thing here, verse 11, we also see that God providentially works through the decisions that people make. Verse 11 is just the seemingly small, insignificant detail. It says, Hebrew the Kenite had separated from the, the the Kenites. And the, the Kenites were relatives of Moses' father-in-law, the text tells us. And so there's this guy, Heber, and for whatever reason, he says, you know what, I'm going to leave you guys, and I'm going to move north. And it says that he uh, pitches his tent in this new place, this place near Kedesh. It's one small, seemingly insignificant detail, and yet it's going to play a major factor in the story later when Heber's wife drives a tent peg through Sisera's skull, right? Even the seemingly small decisions that people make, God providentially works through. Proverbs 16.9, the heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Proverbs 19.21, many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand God providentially works through the decisions that people make. How does that help us? As we worry about different circumstances, we say, okay, I believe that God is providentially working even through seemingly insignificant decisions. Number three, I'm going to go through some of these a little bit more quickly. Number three, God 
providentially even works through the actions of his enemies. Verse 12 tells us Sisera, remember this is Jabin's commander, he's told that Barak, the son of Abinoam, was at Mount Tabor, and so he calls out his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and he goes and he gathers them exactly where God said he would draw Sisera to. This location of the battle is, is near Megiddo, where, where countless battles have been fought. Remember, the, the, the battle of Armageddon is going to be in this place. And Sisera knows where Barak is, and he goes to this place where the land is flat and where his chariots will be devastating to the people of Israel. He's exercising his will, right? He's making a decision. This enemy of the people of Israel is making a decision that he believes is going to be devastating for them. And yet, what do we see? We see that God is providentially working through the action even of his enemies. God is placing Sisera exactly where he desires to be. Proverbs 16.4, the Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. Psalm chapter 2, verse 2, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs, the Lord holds them in derision. Now, why is that comforting? Sometimes we worry about what people who don't like us think. We worry about people who are upset at us or doing to us. We worry about what's going to happen whenever this person who's being competitive with us is going to do this and then they're going to do that. And, and what does this tell us? Look, God providentially is working even through the actions of his enemies. People who may hate you think they're accomplishing their own ends by hurting you, and indeed their wounds can be deep. God is still in control. God is still providentially working in your life for his glory and for your good. Fourth thing we see in the story, we see that God providentially works through the forces of nature. Look at verses 14 through 16. Deborah says to Barak, "Up! Ah, this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Doesn't the Lord go out before you? And so uh, it's, it's clear that, that God is the one who is at work. And, and Sisera, look, something interesting happens in verse, uh, f- verse 15. It says, The Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down out of his chariot and, and fled away on foot. Now, now why did that take place? Well, chapter 5 tells us there was a storm. God brings about a storm, and and suddenly these iron chariots that are so devastating in in good weather on flat ground are suddenly stuck in the the, the mud, the muck, and Sisera is forced to flee, and suddenly these chariots that were so devastatingly effective are now absolutely useless and a hindrance. God providentially even works through the forces of na- nature. I was reading a story this, this week about how scientists recently found the, the world's, or the, 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 they found the, the furthest dying galaxy that, that had been disco- that's been discovered to date. And they talked about, you know, a dying galaxy is one where there's no new stars being produced and how many, how many light years away it is, and how the, the furthest thing we've ever seen is 13.5 billion light years away, and, and there's a galaxy out there, and, and, and you think, okay, there's a galaxy billions of light years away, 
full of, in, in this dying galaxy, is full of, like, I think a, like a trillion stars and, and, and planets and all of those things. And there, there's a planet, there's a planet in that galaxy, billions of, 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 of light years away, that has weather, some sort of weather events on it. And God is in charge of that too. He's in charge of the, the weather on the, the trillions and trillions of, of planets that exist in the, the universe and the galaxies. And, and what's more, he is also mindful of, of the weather that I encounter on a daily basis. A, f- a friend this last week was upset about the snow. Very, very close friend. You know, messing up his schedule. But what, is, what does this tell us? Don't worry. Don't get anxious. Don't be concerned. It's not worship. God's in control of these things. And God providentially even works through the forces of nature in order to accomplish his purposes. And then finally, and this is what I want to spend a little bit more time on, thinking through, because we've talked about God's providence before, but this brings us to a subject that I think a lot of people have as they come to this, this story that I think is helpful for us to think about. Finally, this, God providentially works through the faithfulness of women. God providentially works through the faithfulness of women. What happens next in the story? Sisera flees, right? He gets out of this chariot that's this useless. His army is routed. The, the battle is lost, and he, he flees. And now the, the, the family that God sovereignly brought into this area comes back in the story, and there's Jael, the, the wife of Heber, the man who had moved his family to get away from the other Kenites. And, and there's peace between Sisera and, and Heber's clans, their, their groups. But Jael... Heber's wife comes out to meet Sisera, and she tells him to come into the tent. He comes into the tent. He asks her for water. She gives him milk. He asks her to stand guard. She says, there's no one here. And he says, well, stand guard. If no one comes, say that no one's here. And so she takes a tent peg after he lies down, and she, she kills him with one fell swoop of the hammer. He dies. I think Jael is contrasted, the, the strength of Jael, this, this woman here, is contrasted with this, the, the, the weakness of Sisera. And Deborah, in, in her strength, is, is contrasted with the weakness of, of Barak. And, and as we look at the, going to chapter 5, there's a response of worship as, as God uh, is praised for the way in which he brought about his, his salvation and his people. And there, there's contrast throughout the, the whole chapter 5 of, of how God brings about this, this salvation. But, but here's what I want us to think about, because I think it's important for a church like ours to talk about this. We need, I believe, as a church, to, to think about, to meditate up, upon this reality that we rejoice in God's providential salvation that he provides through faithful women. Now, some Christians, some Christians would say that there is, there's no difference between men and, and women, right? And there's no difference in the types of roles that, that men and women should play. There's no difference in, 
and uh, ultimately in, in what it means to be a man or a woman and, and the roles that men and women play sh- don't need to be distinct. Some Christians would say, okay, the, the roles in a church need to be distinct, but it's not anything essential about being a man and being a woman. It's kind of like God, God flipped a coin and said, okay, men, you're in charge of this area and women, you're in charge of this area. And, and, and what I would say it, that we need as, as a church to affirm, and we do affirm this as a church, is no, no, God has created roles for men and God has created roles for women. And those roles aren't based just on, on chance, but they're based upon design. God has designed men and women to fulfill certain functions and roles within a family, within a church, and, and that has repercussions in, into broader society. Now, some of you may be from, from churches where you're hearing me say this, you're like, man, I, I didn't know people believe these things still. Is this the 1950s? But we, we do believe that God has created men and women differently and that we have distinct roles to play within families, within the community of faith, and those roles are different. They're not based simply upon uh, arbitrary decisions, but based upon design. Our church, then, is something you call complementarian, right? It's called complementarianism, and it, it doesn't mean like Men and women should go around complimenting each other, although that's nice. It's not saying, hey, you have a nice hat. Oh, thank you. I like your hair. I mean, that's, actually, that might be inappropriate, too, so be careful. But um, it's not complementarianism. It's complementarianism. In other words, it's, it's the belief that God has designed men and women different ways, and they, they complement one another in the roles in which they play in, in a church and in a home. Uh, one person has, has put it this way, uh, God has designed men at the heart of masculinity a sense of, of responsibility to, to lead, to provide for, to protect women in ways that are appropriate to man's and differing relationships, his sacrificial love, providing a picture of Christ and his love for the church. And at the heart of, of femininity is a, a, a disposition to affirm, to receive, to, to nurture strength and leadership from worthy men in ways appropriate to women's differing relationships. And so providing a picture of the church and its love for Christ. That's, that's what our church believes. It's what we teach, that there's unique roles, that men have a role of, of sacrificial leadership, that women have a role of encouraging that and nurturing that, and that's, that's what we teach. Now, complementarianism, that, that belief, is facing a reckoning. There have been uh, ways in which we have Complementarian churches have have uh, expressed that belief in ways that are are um, not biblical, and some churches in ways that are uh, demonic. Quite frankly, so there are some things as we think about how God is glorified through faithful women, and, and that we're a complementary church that we believe that men and women complement one another in their roles. There are some things that we need to affirm. And teach about women. Here, here are a couple of them. Number one, we, we must believe and affirm and proclaim that women teach God's word, right? Women teach God's word. We mentioned that Deborah was, was a prophetess earlier, and, and we see women functioning in, the, in that role of proclaiming God's truth in other places in Scripture. Miriam in Exodus 15, in, in Acts chapter 2, 
uh, Peter is talking at the, the day of Pentecost, the, the beginning of the church, and people are, are, are seeing these, these people prophesying. They're what's going on? And, and Peter says, look, what's happening is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. This is Acts 2.17, quoting the prophet Joel. And the last days it will be, declares the Lord, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. In other words, God has, has given uh, women the ability to understand and proclaim his truth. That's something that sometimes in complementarian teaching is, is not emphasized enough. There are some of you who are women who God has gifted to teach, and you're not doing that. And maybe some of the fault is uh, those of us who are, are men and aren't leading well and providing you opportunities to teach and encouraging you to that. And maybe there's some, some, uh, some humility on your part. Like, oh, I don't know if I can. And, and we're doing a bad job in encouraging you to do so. We need to improve on that. And, and those of you who are women, who know other women who have the gift of teaching, you need to encourage them. Say, I see God using you to, to teach God's word. Let me, let me encourage you to, to be nurturing that ability. Secondly, and the second thing we have to affirm as a complementary church, that women speak God's truth to men. Okay, let's get explicit here. In this context and others, we see, we see uh, let me go broader for the church, we see sisters in Christ in Scripture with the ability and the responsibility to speak truths to their brothers in Christ. It's, it's not a violation of, of male headship for a woman to speak truth to her brother in Christ. You see, throughout Scripture, women functioning in such a way that they communicate God's truth to men. So, for example, 2 Kings 22 Josiah hears that God's, he hears God's law read in 2 Kings 22, and, he, and he's convicted by what God's word says, and so he, he rips his, his robes, and he says, now, now, now what do we do? And the, they, they go to uh, Hilkah the priest, and, and some others go to Huldah the prophetess, the wife of Shalom, the son of Tikvah, and, and Hilkah and Hakam and Akbor listen to what Huldah tells them. She says, okay, here's what God says. In Isaiah chapter 8, Isaiah's wife is called a prophetess. In Luke chapter 2, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, is, is there in the temple. And she's, she's, uh, she's had lived with her husband for seven years when she was a virgin, then as a widow until she was 84. And she sees Jesus. And then what happens after that? She began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were there. So she's, she's proclaiming, hey, here's, here's the one we've been waiting for. Now, the testimony then of Scripture is that women have the ability, and indeed I would say the responsibility, to proclaim God's truth to their brothers in Christ. And a view of, of biblical headship where it says, okay, a hus a husbands or, or men should not receive correction and rebuke and instruction from women, I don't believe is a biblical view. In fact, in fact, brothers, let me speak to, to us, Brothers, if you are not receiving God's word from your sisters in Christ, you are culpable for the things that, that you're not listening to them say to you. Sister comes to you and says, look, this is, you know, I, I see this in your life, and here's what God's word says, and, and I, I believe you're in violation of this. And, and, and you know, or a woman comes to, to me as a pastor and says, hey, look, here's what our church is doing, and here's what God's word says. Brothers, 
we're culpable if we do not listen to our sisters in Christ as they proclaim God's truth to this to us. Do you, do you believe that? Brothers, we're, we're responsible if we are not providing avenues for, for women to speak God's truth to us because God has given women the ability to see and know his truth and we need to listen to it. We need to listen to God's truth from the women in our lives. Third truth here, God uh, providentially works through women and, and women provide godly leadership. Now, what's happening here in Judges, I think, is, is clearly that, that Deborah is functioning abnormally. There, there's a dearth of male leadership here. I think that's clear. But that doesn't mean that she's not a true prophetess. She is. She calls herself in chapter 5 a, a mother of Israel, right? And she's able to provide leadership and, and direction and nurturing to God's people. Proverbs 31 describes the, the woman that, that serves and cares the, the and as she serves, that's the essence of biblical servant leadership, right? Now, number four, a fourth thing to think about here. Women exercise their giftings as, as women, right? So we, we still believe that there are certain roles that men and women are to play within the church, and women are going to exercise their gifting as women. So, for example, and, you know, I'm not going to have time to get into all of the the specific examples you might think of this morning, uh, maybe tomorrow at the, in the post-Sunday app uh, that we do on Facebook, I'll, I'll, I'll give some more specific examples and some thoughts to think through. But what we see in, in Scripture is that both men and women are to play these roles, and, and even though both have the ability to understand and teach God's Word, there are some contexts in which men in the role of servant leadership are to exercise, uh, exercise their role. So, for example, Paul tells Timothy that, that uh, women are not to, to teach or to exercise authority over a man, uh, rather the, the wife is, is to learn from, from her husband. And I think he's talking there about the context of a, a corporate worship service. As men are providing servant leadership, uh, sacrificial leadership for the church there to be involved in that, that time of corporate instruction. 1 Corinthians 11 envisions that women speaking in the church in a way that's orderly, and they're, they're encouraging their brothers and their other sisters. And then in 1 Corinthians 14, Paul talks about male leadership and interpreting God's prophetic words. He says, okay, when you're gathered, there's an appropriate time for women to speak and, and to encourage with God's word. But when there's a corporate worship setting and God's word is being, I think the key there is God's word is being authoritatively interpreted and there's being direction provided for the church at that time, it's limited to, to the males who are in uh, functioning as servant leaders, uh, pastors specifically. So women are to exercise these roles within the, the, the context of, of their gifting and the context in which God has created them. In fact, it's interesting, all these passages on women prophesying, they're always mentioned in conjunction with the family they're a part of. So this prophetess is this person's wife, this prophetess is this person's uh, daughter. And so they're always functioning in such a way that, that supports the the men and their responsibility before God to lead well, even when men are leading poorly. At the end of uh, C.S. Lewis's novel, Paralandra, there's this, there's this really interesting scene where uh, the, the main character sees this, these um, kind of like angels or, or, or beings from other, other planets, and one is, represents masculinity, one re represents femininity. And, and, and C.S. Lewis, as he talks about the ending of this, this story, he says, you know, biologically they weren't male and female, but there was something deeper about being male and female that he could see in each of them. In other words, being male and female isn't just this biological thing, it's, it's something, something about our design. 
one pastor tells it this way, and, and I, I won't get the story that uh, I won't tell it as, as well as, as he tells it or get all the, the nuances of it right. But he, he says, imagine this. Imagine a, a, a man, a young man and a young woman who don't know each other well are, are going out on a first date. They're walking in a street, and, and someone comes out and, and tries to, to mug them. And the guy has a knife. And he says that the, the, young man, the young man steps in front of the woman, again, not knowing her very well, but, but steps in front of the woman with a desire to protect her. And there's something instinctively masculine about this. It's like I recognize that God has given me as, as a man the responsibility to, to care and protect this woman. In other words, it's not about ability. See, what the guy doesn't know is that the, the woman's a black belt in karate and can take out this guy like that, right? And this guy's kind of a doofus, right? And ends up getting hurt. But, but um, it's not about ability. It's not about competency necessarily. It's about something ingrained that says, I recognize that my responsibility is to, is to lay down my life and care for the women that God has placed in my life. That, that's something about headship, about, about masculinity, and this young woman, as she sees this young man's willingness to, 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 to step in front of this, this threat, she responds to that. There's something in her femininity that responds to that, says, that's the type of person that I want to give my life to. That's the type of person I want to nurture and encourage and allow to be all that God has called him to be as well. And I'm going to use my, my giftings to do that. And it's not just in the context of a marriage relationship. It's true within the context of, of a church as well. The bottom line is this, and I think this is so true for those of us who are part of conservative churches that, that, that believe in these differences between men and women. We, we need to hear this. God is using the women in our church to accomplish incredible things. The women in this story are, 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 are intelligent, they're faithful, they're competent, they're strong, physically and emotionally far, far stronger than the men. If we don't confess that the, and allow this to be an issue we're constantly thinking through, going to, to miss out on God's providential, beautiful work of salvation through faithful women. The story points us ultimately, of course, to, to Christ. Th this judge that Deborah stands in contrast to, this, this Barak guy, later on he's going to mention be mentioned in 1 Samuel as a deliverer, he's going to be mentioned in, in Hebrews as a person of faith, and yet, apart from Deborah's faithfulness, he would not have been the judge he was supposed to be. Ultimately, we need Jesus Christ, the perfect king, the king who can work about our salvation by changing even our hearts. Brothers and sisters, we, we see God's providential hand at work in our lives. And as we worry, as we get distressed by things, we fail to worship. Worry suppresses worship. But as I'm confronted with God's providential salvation, I can only respond with worship through faith in him alone. Let's pray. And Father, we do recognize this morning as a church our need for you. We confess our trust in your son Jesus alone this morning recognizing he is our, our perfect provision, your perfect sacrifice. As we partake of the Lord's Supper this morning as a church, please, please make us aware of those areas in which we worry, in which we fret, in which we're concerned. And help us to, to trust in you and respond in worship and not worry. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.